Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 through 24. All right. Reading from God's holy word, it says, Then he, that is Jesus, began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazon! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works had been done in you that had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And to you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? Will you be brought down to Hades? Or you will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Does everyone here remember the video that Alejandro showed last week? Now, anyone who's, this is your first time here, uh, understandably, you, you don't remember it. But we showed a video where a guy pulled a prank on his coworker, right? And he pretended like he had a, a staple through his finger. And not, not just a paper staple, this was a nice uh, construction staple. It was big and it was thick, but it was cut off. And so he just had put like a little red piece of Play-Doh down and had put the staple such that it looked like, oh, I've been pierced. And he calls his coworker over and he shows this to him. And the guy's, he's like, here, I need you to take these, these uh, wire snippers and snip it. And the guy's like, okay, where'd I do it? And he keeps pulling his finger out and pointing where to cut it on the staple and putting his finger back under. And the coworker never put it together that the finger wasn't stapled at all. Now, I was ready to say that the point of that video was to show that some people are too stupid to be tricked. But thankfully, Alejandro had a much better application, a spiritual application, that people were ready to reject the facts if they don't line up with their preconceived notions, if they don't line up with what they already believed to be true. And we see this played out in how the people reacted to John the Baptist and Jesus' ministry. John the Baptist's ministry resulted in him living in a very restrictive manner. He didn't eat fancy food, and he didn't drink wine, and people said clearly this means he has a demon. Jesus' ministry, on the other hand, took on the almost exact opposite circumstances. He ate freely with people, and he drank wine with people, and he associated with the sinners and the tax collectors, and people accused him of being a glutton and a drunkard. Now, to make sure we're all on the same page as we go into this, this passage, I want us to go over uh, three words that are going to be important to our understanding of the passage. There we go. It is working. The words are hypocrisy, denounce, and repent. Hypocrisy, denounce, and repent. Now, denounce and repent might seem obvious why I want to talk about those. So right there in verse 20, it says, Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works have been done because they did not repent. Okay, pretty straightforward. But why am I going for hypocrisy? Where's that coming from? Well, it's because the hypocrisy of the people in verses 18 and 19 is what prompts Jesus to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works have been done. So what is a hypocrite? The word hypocrite goes back to the first century BC. Now, how many people thought when you came to your Bible lesson tonight, you'd be getting an etymology lesson, a lesson on the origin of words? Uh, but here we go. It goes back to the first century BC, and it simply means an actor or a stage player. During this time, actors would wear one of these clay masks, and this is a mask of Zeus, and this is how you showed what character you were playing in the play. So unlike today, where every five seconds, Spider-Man takes off his mask, so you get to see that handsome face, 
they would keep their faces covered so that you never were confused about who they were playing between the different plays. By the time Jesus' ministry to the world began, uh, this word began to take on a less literal meaning of an actor and began to take on the more figurative meaning of a person pretending to be someone or something that they were not. So when we see the word hypocrite in the Bible then, we're talking about someone who outwardly is playing a role, someone who puts on the mask of a religious man, but inwardly they do not follow after God. Turn real quick to Matthew chapter 23. It's just two pages over, maybe. Uh, maybe more if you've got a really good commentary, maybe less if uh, it's just a regular real Bible. But Matthew chapter 23, starting in verse 25. We see Jesus gives, in this passage, the perfect definition for what a hypocrite is. It's, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are clean on the for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees first clean the inside of the cup and the plate so that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of uh, you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. This is the mindset that Jesus has when he's rebuking these cities for, on the outside, they're going to have the appearance of cleanliness, but on the inside, they're full of death and decay. And this alone would be enough of an issue on a personal level. But if you look back up just a few verses in Matthew 23, in verse 13, we read, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourself, nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, that is a follower, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. So this wasn't just a private issue for the person being a hypocrite. Because, you know, there's some sins that in our modern society we like to describe as respectable sins or polite sins. You know, if someone's a little lazy, oh, you know, people are lazy. If someone is a, a little complaining, oh, they're a little complaining. I mean, it's sin. We recognize it as sin, but we, we view them as respectable sins, sins that aren't nearly as bad as, you know, say a drunkard. Well, a drunkard, that's a real big issue. Someone who's lying all the time, that's a real big issue. But someone who's a little lazy, well, that's... That's, that's a private thing, right? That's a, that doesn't really affect other people. Well, the answer is no. Our personal sins, the things that we think affect just us, end up spreading outward when left unchecked, like a cancerous growth. Likewise, with hypocrisy, Jesus denounces the scribes and Pharisees because they're acting the part of a religious person. They go out and they teach people about what they believe, and instead of that person coming to God to a genuine relationship with him, they turn around and they shut the door so that anyone who is legitimately interested in becoming a follower of the one true God is instead barred from heaven forever because they are following this hypocritical doctrine. In Romans 1, when we talk about the wrath of God being revealed to unrighteous men who knowingly suppress the truth, the hypocrite being described here in Matthew 11 is this sort of person the one who is actively and knowingly suppressing the truth. 
So here in Matthew 11, Jesus, as the creator of all life, who knows the innermost thoughts of man, knows that they don't care that John's not eating. Jesus knows that they don't care that he is eating. And he moved, he's moved because of this hypocrisy to denounce them, which is a great transition. Let's talk about the word denounce. It's an interesting word. Uh, when it's used today, I get this mental image of kind of a parent wagging their finger. Ah, ah, ah. No, you, you shouldn't have done that. Uh, it's, we're kind of, you know, it's a disobedient child. But in actuality, when we talk about denouncing something, uh, we're talking about reproaching or rebuking someone. And it can also mean, uh, interestingly, to mock or revile a person. Uh, and revile, of course, means to insult. So this word denounce carries along with it the thought of mocking or insulting someone, reproaching and rebuking them. The same word used here is denounced was also used to describe how the thieves on either side of Jesus hurled insults at him. And it's the same word used in 1 Peter 4.14 when we're told that we should consider ourselves blessed when we are insulted, that is, denounced, for the name of Christ. So understand then that when Jesus is spurned to denounce them because of their hypocrisy for putting on that face, that mask of religiousness, while being a maggot-filled tomb on the inside, this is not some finger-wagging moment. He's not going, oh, you rascals, you. Jesus is forcefully and emphatically rebuking and reviling these cities. Because they didn't care what, that John had a restricted diet, diet, and they didn't care that Jesus ate like anyone else. They cared, according to verse 20, at the very end of it, that they were being called to repentance. But what does that even mean? Now, I think it's safe to say, looking out here, that most of y'all have probably grown up having been exposed to some form of weekly Bible teaching. Uh, maybe some of y'all, you've grown up in a house where every single night you'll have that time of devotional with your family. Um, so you, you probably have heard the word repentance before, and I'm guessing you might even be able to use it in a sentence about, oh yes, I would like to repent from what I, I just did, or yeah, when, I, when my parents called me out on this, I, I was moved and I, I repented of my sin. But what does repentance actually mean? In Mark 1, 4, when we read that Jesus appeared, or when we read that John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a gospel of repentance or baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, what does it mean? Well, to repent means to change the inner man. Uh, it's not just getting in trouble and going, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I got in trouble. Uh, no, you're, you're, you might be sorry because you got in trouble, but if you're just... Well, no, we're not really sorry we did it. We're sorry we got caught. To say that we repented is to be going in one direction and to do a quick U-turn, to turn back. And the complete and opposite direction is to think about an issue at its most basic level and deeply considering it to change what you thought about that issue. So when we come to Matthew 11, verses 20 through 24, the issue we see is that despite having seen the great and mighty works of Jesus, the people living in these cities did not turn back from their sin, but instead continued and persisted on in that same sinful lifestyle. And then they created a, a hypocritical excuse why they weren't believing in, in Jesus and John's ministry. Uh, they said, oh, I, I would have believed in John, but the man was demon-possessed. Did you see the way he ate locusts? 
Oh, I would believe in the message of Jesus, but the man was a drunkard and a glutton. He ate with tax collectors. And you're going to see that as you grow up and as you witness other people around you, they're going to respond in the same manner. You're going to present the gospel to someone and their response is going to be, I would like to believe, but I can't because of some reason. Or they're going to say, oh, I, I just can't believe in a God who fill in the blank. Uh, I can't believe in a God who teaches that homosexuality is a sin. Oh, I can't believe in a God that says women shouldn't teach in the church. Oh, I can't believe in a God who lets bad things happen to good people. There will be some excuse they come up with. And when they do that, don't go down the rabbit hole with them. Don't try to address them on their made-up excuse. Because that's not the ultimate issue they have. Christ lays it out quite clearly that the root issue they have is that they know the truth, according to Romans 1, and they don't want to repent. That they refuse to acknowledge God as having the rightful authority over morality and history of every single person has ever been or ever will live. And instead, they're worshiping themselves as little gods. And maybe, maybe that's you here today. Like the people in the cities we're about to discuss, maybe you've put on that mask of religion. You show up week after week, and you go through the motions, and you take the notes. You go home, and you're good boys, and you're good girls, and you're outwardly obedient. But on the inside, maybe your heart is like that tomb full of rot and decay. And if that's the case, I hope you pay special attention tonight. Because we're going to be going over the extra danger that you are in right now. You're in because you're listening to this message week after week after week. Jesus began to denounce the cities where he spent most of his time, where he did most of his mighty works because they did not repent. So when I've gone over these important words in the sentence, there really are just two questions I have left uh, when I read it. Uh, when I read this opening sentence, I said, well, what are the cities we're talking about and what mighty works did they see? Now, fortunately, we can answer half of that super easy. Uh, verse 20 is a bit of a framing verse. Have y'all had to read any uh, Shakespeare yet? I hear a groan. I hear a groan. That I'm going to take as a yes. Uh, I, I love me some Shakespeare. I especially love rewriting it such that it makes no sense. Uh, in silly ways, <laughs> kind of modernizing it, uh, just as jokes with my friends. But if you ever read Shakespeare, or someday you're forced to, because you're likely to be forced to, it's going to happen. But if you ever do, you're trying to read through it, and all of a sudden there's this little thing in italics off to the side. No one's talking, it's just there. And it says something like, Horatio exits stage left. Or Mark Anthony stabs Caesar. These were little stage directions. Uh, something that the people weren't supposed to say out loud. You'd be in a little trouble if, you know, he walks out and he says, uh, Hamlet picks up skull. Alas, Horatio. A man, no. Uh, that'd be a big issue. <laughs> it'd be a, it'd make for a fun play to see because it's going to be horrible. But they weren't supposed to be said out loud. We get to look at the Bible and we get to see these framing verses throughout the gospel as they explain what on earth is going on. So in verse 20 is a framing and it's going to let us know what's going on in verses 21 through 24. So we can figure out what cities is talking about just by reading the next three verses. Super easy. Uh, 
it's going to uh, tell us that Jesus is specifically rebuking these three cities. They are Chorazon, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. And it's hard to see because I use yellow on yellow, but they are right here. Capernaum, Chorazon, and Bethsaida. They form a nice little triangle right there on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. And the reason why these three cities are significant is because these three cities and their surrounding areas are where Jesus spent most of his three-year ministry here on earth. It's where he performed most of his miracles, and it's where he did most of his teaching. And Capernaum is especially significant because this is where he most likely had his headquarters set up, so to speak. Uh, so if you're, you're reading about a miracle Christ performed outside the Passion Week, which obviously that's going to be in the Jerusalem area, odds are very, very high that it took place somewhere in this little triangle or maybe just a tiny bit outside of it. As for what those mighty works are that we're going to be talking about, uh, unfortunately, we don't get a nice bullet point list. Um, I, I wish we did in the verses that follow. It says, he did the mighty works, namely this, 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 this. Well, that would make for a, a very long passage, but it'd be very interesting to see uh, as a Christian just have a list like that. Now, thankfully, there are very faithful men in the church who have made that list, and I've been able to use their work. So what mighty works did Jesus do in this area? There was the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the fish overflowing the disciples' nets when Jesus called some of them, the healing of the demoniac, that's the demon-possessed man who professed Christ as the Holy One of God in the synagogue. Uh, there was Peter's mother-in-law healed, the centurion's servant was healed, the paralytic was healed, the woman who had suffered from a flow of blood for years was healed, Jairus' daughter was raised from the dead, uh, two blind men were healed, a mute was, who was demon-possessed was healed, the man with the withered hand was healed, the blind and the mute demon-possessed man was healed. Jesus paid the temple tribute from the coin that got from the fish's mouths. Uh, from here, he fed 5,000 people, he fed 4,000 people. There's another blind man healed. Jesus walked on the water curve next to these cities. That's me being cheeky, but it's close enough. Uh, again, the storm quieted in the Sea of Galilee, not quite in the triangle I showed, but it's okay because the disciples would have relayed that. And finally, Jesus healed the Capernaum's official son in Canaan, which was uh, pretty far away. But the official came from Capernaum. So surely he would have gone back to his hometown where Jesus was located, where his headquarters were located, and he would have told people about what had occurred. Uh, which, uh, yes, I, I showed it down here. Um, Canaan, way down here. So... Uh, again, that's kind of me being cheeky, including it on that list. But I think it's legitimate because he would have gone back and told other people that Jesus had healed his son. Now, of course, this list is only a list of the things that Jesus specifically did that are recorded in the Bible. Uh, right here. And we're told, uh, so this thing that Jesus specifically did in the Bible and that we're told where he did them. Or there's enough context clues to know where he did them. So for example, if it says Jesus healed this person and then he went on to heal this person, we can go, okay, well, he did those two things in the same spot most likely. And we're kind of able to make this list. There are plenty of miracles that we read about in the gospels that we don't know where Jesus did it. There's not enough context clues for us to really definitively say, this is the city he did it in. Uh, even, even with this feeding of the 5,000 and 4,000, it could have happened that he actually did it over Hirsch, uh, which I don't think that city on the, the map, but it's most likely he did up here in Chorazin, maybe he did over here. We use 
context clues and we figure things out. So there's some things that we're just, we're not 100% sure on. These are only the things that we are fairly confident about. And that's just the things we had recorded. Jesus spent three years doing miracles and teaching people. Uh, if we had every, everything he ever did, surely it would be uh, more than we could ever recount. Now I want you to look at this list and tell me, what about this list is so significant that people can rightly be condemned? I mean, look at this. What says, hey, you should have seen this happen and gone, yes, this is the Son of God. This is the Messiah that's been promised to us. What's so significant that this was able to prove the divinity of Christ? Yeah. He was doing things that literally you could not do that were not explainable by the simple rules of logic you knew. Sure. They, they were supernatural events, yeah. They were instant. They were instant, yeah. Uh, maybe a doctor at the time. Maybe he knew how to get rid of a headache, have a certain type of bark. Um, I forget which, but you can have a certain type of bark and it helps. But it takes time for that medicine to take an effect. Jesus was able to do it right away. Yeah. He had power over nature and demons. Yeah, it shows how he did have power over nature and how he had power over demons. He quieted the storm. He had the fish overwhelm the nets. Yeah. Oh, that's just pointing to Greyhound. Um, he healed people from other places. He healed people from the places. Yeah. So uh, we see that he was able to do these supernatural things. Things that you wouldn't expect to happen in the, in the natural course of human events. But I want you to think about this. I'm going to challenge you on something. And you know what? Um, I'm actually going to preface this. I'm going to take you down a bit of a bad logic thinking trail here, okay? But I want you all to be thinking through this. If someone comes and they bring these arguments up against you, I want you to be equipped. But I also want you to know that we're about to go down some bad logic here, okay? Okay. Uh, so... We talked about it being supernatural. So I want you to consider this point. As you read the scriptures, we see that demon-possessed individuals sometimes also had supernatural abilities. Uh, we specifically see in Mark 5, 1 through 5 and Acts 19, that people sometimes had superhuman strength while demon-possessed. And uh, we also see even more amazingly in Acts 16. Go ahead and turn with me to Acts 16 real quick. We're going to read this account. I'm going to be reading from Acts 16, verses 16 to 19. Okay, Acts 16, verses 16 to 19. It says, As we, that's Paul and Silas, were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And they came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. Now, we're not going to go super deep into this passage. But... As we, we think about this passage, understand that we live in a day and age where the authentic church of Christ faces a lot of attack from uh, those who would take the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives and try to pervert them into self-gain. Self Do we not? Uh, people try to use the gifts of tongues 
to fill a church service with everyone speaking in gibberish, such that no one can hear anything. There can be no teaching taught. Uh, there, there are people who claim to have the gift of healing, and they, they will rob a woman of her last two cents and tell her that she has the healing of Christ, and she gets wheeled off the stage in a wheelchair still. As a result, when we come to a passage like this young girl who is able to uh, do divination, I think there's a tendency to quietly shy away from that because we don't like talking about supernatural stuff sometimes. Um, we, we tend to be, I, I used to jokingly call um, our, our church, my old church, the frozen chosen. Uh, we, we didn't raise our hands when we sang. And we certainly didn't uh, do anything that might be mistaken as charismatic. But we come to this passage and we see some amazing stuff going on. Pastors who faithfully teach each and every word of the passage, when they get here, they give us like cough, and then they move on. I'm going to do that as well. <laughs> We're going to take this at face value, okay? Uh, later on, we will get to this. Uh, should we, we continue and we go through the book of Acts? But just like as the witch of Endor, remember that Saul went to her and said, I want you to let me speak to Samuel. And she was a medium, and she was literally able to speak to the spirit of Samuel from beyond the grave. We take that at face value as something that legitimately happened. So we're going to take this at face value for now. I'm not able to say for certain what it means by fortune telling and divination, but she had that. And it was clearly something that once the demon left her, she didn't have any more. So we see that demons often brought supernatural abilities, perhaps even up to the point that they could see some amount of the future. Knowing that, and surely since the people of the time knew that, the people of the time saw the demon possessed. They saw the man who lived among the catacombs, who had supernatural strength. Would it be entirely unfair of us to say uh, that they could have seen Jesus performing a supernatural act and gone, is this legitimately from God? And if not his acts, then what about his message? Uh, were the things he taught people enough to hold them accountable for not accepting him. After all, if you turn to Acts 5, and you don't need to, but if you turn to Acts 5, uh, we find the high priest and those who were with him filled with jealousy at the mighty works the apostles were performing. So they arrest the apostles, and they bring them before him, and Peter says he must obey God instead of them. And then starting in verse 33, we read, when they heard this, Peter saying that we must obey God, not you, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named uh, Gamiel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to the men of Israel, take care what you're about to do. For before these days, Thaddeus rose up, claiming to be someone, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed and all those who followed him scattered. After him, Judas, the Galilean, rose in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished and all who followed him would scatter. Others had risen up through their messages before Christ. So again, I ask you, and I'm waiting, I told you this was bad logic, but I ask you, if someone comes at you and says, how can you legitimately believe in the teaching of Christ? If you believe there's supernatural things and you want to say, well, I can believe in Jesus because he did supernatural stuff, they can say, well, so do the demons. If so I can believe in Jesus because of his teaching, they can say, well, there's been other teachers. What is it about these mighty works that made it enough. 
do you think there were some of these cities who in their innocence or who were innocent in their ignorance? Or to put it another way, how do you know that these mighty works were enough? How do you know? They were done for the good of people. Okay, done for the good of people. What else? Because Jesus left, well, I guess not lasted. He is, his teaching continues to, um, I don't know, be reprinted and given, translated to, into many languages. Um, you could say his teaching outlived all the rest of it, all the rest of the teachings, I guess. You could, you could. Uh, non-believers might respond with, well, Hinduism has been around longer than Christianity. They might say that, well, Muhammad's teachings have been along, around for that long, too. Uh, but you're, you're on the right. You're, you're thinking. Yeah. It was done by the authority of God. How can you prove that? How can you prove that they were done by the authority of God? Well, that's the thing about every religion. There's no one can prove what religion is truly believable. Oh, there, there's definitely a way. I admit it's going to sound like circular reasoning to a lot of people. Uh, in fact, I'm going to give you a hint. Look at verse 21. Or even just look at verse 20. How can we know that the mighty works Christ did were enough to hold these three cities accountable for not believing? Um, I may be wrong but it may be the variety of things he did because demons could only do like one or two minorish things, but Jesus could literally do a bunch of different things and control things, like he calmed the storms, and demons never really would make someone see again. They'd probably go and take someone's sight, but Jesus made it. She, he rose people from the dead. He made it so that they could see again. He made the lame person walk, and a demon would never want to help someone. Just make it worse for someone. That's true. That is very true. A demon would never want to help someone. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you. And you're going to go, Matthew, that was not a fun riddle. You cheated us. The answer is because Jesus tells us in his own words. Oh. <laughs> well... And verse, I know, it's like one of those riddles to say, I have two coins that equal 30 cents. One of them's not a nickel. What are the two coins? The answer is a nickel and a quarter. Sure, one of them's not a nickel, but the other one is. I know, I know. It's not a fair riddle, but I used it anyways. We can have full authority in this because Christ tells us in his own words that every last person and Chorazon, Bethsaida, and Capernaum should have repented having witnessed his mighty works. That is the first and foremost reasons. Christ told us they were enough. And I absolutely, 100% could stop right there. We don't need external sources to prove that God is right. The Bible in of itself and the things that it teaches are enough to hold us accountable. But... I did specifically bring up two points, and I want to address those two points. Uh, we talked about how demons were also able to do supernatural things and how uh, other people had arisen. So let's first talk about uh, how demon possession sometimes brought supernatural abilities. And while this is true, as has been pointed out, never did we see those abilities being beneficial. Not once. Uh, the closest you can get to saying is that 
a girl who was able to see the future or practice divinations, uh, may not see the future, whatever that entails, maybe that was beneficial for her. But we don't know what other things she suffered from. We know at the very least that she couldn't control her own body. When she was in the presence of, of Paul and Silas, she, the demon forced her to speak the truth about Christ. Uh, the strong man who had supernatural strength was constantly cutting himself with stones. In every other account we see of demon possession, it talks about the demon possession making them blind or mute or deaf or having seizures or some other ailment. Demon possession uh, was never, ever a beneficial thing. Additionally, the Pharisees actually brought this up already. They said, well, clearly Jesus is casting out demons through the power of uh, Beelzebub. And it's in Matthew 12, 22, and Jesus responds to them, uh, you know, the people are amazed when they see him healing. They say, can this be the son of David? But instead the Pharisees hear it, and they said, it's only Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, says to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. No city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How his, can his kingdom stand? If I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Understand what he's saying right there is uh, later on, the second strong man we read about, who had supernatural strength, uh, seven sons, seven, seven Israelite exorcists had gone to cast out a demon, and they said, in the name of Jesus, whom Peter preaches, we cast you out. And the demon says, uh, well, I've heard of Peter and, or Paul, and I know Jesus, but who are you? And the one demon-possessed man beat up all seven of the exorcists and sent them out naked, beaten and bruised. Uh, so no, you, you're not going to be able to cast out demons through demonic power. Uh, and Jesus is actually saying, hey, your sons are casting out demons. Are you trying to say that they're also doing it through demons' powers? Uh, obviously, the answer was no, they wouldn't believe that. So Jesus' response is, but if the Spirit of God is, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And the Pharisees still didn't believe. Or I should say they did believe, but they didn't repent. So when Jesus did this, also keep in mind that the Pharisees weren't hearing about this secondhand. So it's not like you had a bunch of people, they saw Jesus do a healing, or cast out a demon, and then word finally gets around to the Pharisees, and the Pharisees go, oh, he's just doing it this way. No, the Pharisees were there in the crowd. They saw Jesus healing and casting out demons, and they still had this response. They knew that the miracles Jesus performed were undeniably from God. So that's one of the ways that we know the mighty works were enough. Uh, we know because Christ told us. We know because, conversely, demon possession. It's not that Jesus had a demon and cast out demons through his demonic power. Nope. Uh, it always hurts the person possessed. Uh, miracles Jesus performed were undeniably from God, and they knew it. So the second issue I brought up was uh, others had arisen before him. We had Thaddeus and Judas uh, claiming to be something with a charismatic message. So if others had risen up through their message before Christ, if someone heard Jesus speaking, would that be enough? So let's, let's remove the miracles. You just come and you listen to the Sermon on the Mount. Is that enough to say this was a mighty work that would help hold them accountable for not repenting? Again, the answer is yes. And we know this because in Matthew 7, 
At the very end of the Sermon of the Mount, Matthew 7, verses 20 and 29, it says, And when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as one of their scribes. The messages Jesus taught were undeniably from God. And look, it's good and it's right that we don't accept every single message that we hear from every single pastor, okay? First uh, John 4, 1 and First Thessalonians 5, 20 through 21 both instruct you not to blindly accept every spirit or every new doctrine. It says, test it. In Acts 17, we see the Bereans. They were described as more noble-minded because when Paul and Silas brought their message, instead of you know, chasing them out of town, they actually examined the scriptures daily to see if the things they were teaching were correct. And that is, in fact, the final way that we can know 100% certain that Christ's mighty works were enough to hold the three cities accountable is because Christ's teachings affirmed scriptures. 78 times that I'm aware of, Christ quoted the Old Testament. He quoted from Genesis Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Psalms, Proverbs, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Amos, Jonah, Micah, and Malachi. He quoted from the Pentateuch, the minor and major prophets, the books of poetry, or in other words, Jesus quoted from the beginning to the end of the Old Testament, affirming it as not merely the words of men, but as the authoritative words of God to be obeyed. The people of Churzon, Bethsaida and Capernaum were absolutely in the wrong to have ignored the great and mighty acts uh, Jesus performed there. So when Jesus denounces them, he rebukes them. And yes, he even insults them uh, through his comparison of, to three ancient cities. The cities were Tyre and Sidon, which is up at the very top of the map. And I know it's, it's not super sharp. Forgive me. But up at the very top, top of the map, we got Tyre and Sidon. And that's probably not how you pronounce them. Uh, I wish I could claim that English was my second language, like Alejandro, but the truth is uh, I'm just Southern and we don't talk good. <laughs> Tyre and Sidon were about 70 miles northwest of Capernaum. So if you look way right there where my shadow is, there's Capernaum. About 70 miles northwest, you have Tyre and Sidon. Uh, this, the other city that he compares them to is Sodom and Gomorrah, which, you know, it's not entirely certain uh, where it is. Most of the resources I read believe that they were located somewhere to the southern end of the Dead Sea, uh, though they may have also been located off to the east somewhere or the south. Um, look, you may recall something pretty significant happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, it's made it a little difficult and pinpointing exactly where they were, but they were definitely somewhere. <laughs> but what was it about these three cities? And you might as well say four, because whenever you say Sodom, we know we're lumping Gomorrah into that. Um, but what about these three cities made them such an insult to the cities of Chorazon, Bethsaida, and Capernaum? Now, the Bible doesn't tell us too much about Tyre and Sidon. Uh, in Joshua 19.29, Joshua, uh, Tyre is mentioned as the westernmost border for Asher's territory. Remember in Joshua, we had the dividing of the promised land into the different tribes. And they say, okay, 
Uh, for Asher, you're gonna have the south end and list some cities. You're gonna have the east end and list some cities. You're gonna have the north end. Well, Tyre is listed as one of the boundary points on the western side for Tyre, or for, excuse me, for Asher. Uh, and of course, that's, that's one of the 12 tribes minus Levi and Joseph, but including Ephraim and Manasseh, of course. Second Samuel 5, 11 and First Chronicles 22, 4 mentioned Tyre and Sidon uh, as the places that sent cedars to David and Solomon to build David's palace and the temple, uh, respectively. In fact, remember last week we talked about Psalm 29. We had the, the guest speaker. He was the 50th choice, but, you know, the other 49 were busy, apparently. He talked about the cedars of Lebanon, Tyre and Sidon. That's what we're talking about when we talk about the cedars of Lebanon, this area. Uh, was a very, very fertile place for these cedar trees. Uh, and then we also hear about Jezebel. Apparently, she may have come from Tyre. She may have been a princess there. Um, and and that, that's about it. That's all we hear about Tyre and Sidon in a historical terms until we get to Amos 1, 9, 10 in Ezekiel chapters 26 through 28. And that's where God pronounces judgment on them. So we don't really get to know what was it they did specifically that results in judgment. Uh, we do know there were some attitudes that caused this. And we know this because if you look at Ezekiel chapter 28, you see um, God pronounce his judgment. He says, I'm going to judge you because you are proud, uh, because they, they claimed that they were God and they sat in the seat of gods uh, there on the ocean. Uh, he says, I'm going to judge you because you trust in your great wealth rather, rather than the one who gave them their wealth because they trusted in their splendor rather than the one who gave them that splendor. Apparently, they were also dishonest in their business practices, and they treated Israel with contempt. So these are just a quick listing of some of the things God spells out in Ezekiel uh, chapter 28. So as a result of this, God promises these judgments on them. He said that God is going to manifest his glory in their midst. And think about that just for a second. How would that be a punishment? The Israelites longed for God to manifest his glory amongst them. When the tabernacle stopped and they set it up, or when the cloud stopped and they set up the tabernacle, the glory of God came and descended into the tabernacle and his glory was amongst them. But here we see that God comes in his wrath and in his wrath, it manifests his glory as he pours out judgment on the sinful nation. And as he manifests his glory in their midst, as he demonstrates his holiness in punishing their sinfulness, we see that he promises that he's going to send pestilence and he's going to send bloodshed. And he also promises that enemies would tear down the city and throw it into the sea. And we actually get to see this in history. Uh, Tyre is actually conquered twice, more or less. Uh, the first time it was done by uh, the Persians as Nebuchadnezzar came through and they, they were conquered. Uh, but the second time, and this is a really interesting time. Alexander the Great comes up. And everyone familiar with Alexander the Great? Okay. He's, he was a great guy. He really was. Um, great in the sense of he did amazing, incredible things. Uh, God permitted him to be uh, a great man. And he invades the Persian Empire. And Tyre surrenders. But they're not going to let him come into their city. They say, look, we give up. Fine. You, you beat us. Now go away. And Alexander says, <laughs> no, uh, that is not going to work. Now at the time, Tyre is about 700 to 800 yards off the coastline there. 
That's about half a mile, a little under half a mile, technically. But we're about half a mile out in the, into the sea there. So not satisfied with this, uh, okay, we surrender. Uh, Alexander constructs a land bridge 200 feet wide out to the island that Tyre is located on. And he did it using the cedar trees that Tyre and Sidon were so proud of, the cedars of Lebanon, and other, and other debris. And at the end, the island was scraped bare completely, exactly as God has promised. And the amazing thing about this is today, Tyre is not an island anymore. Because of this, this uh, land bridge Alexander the Great created, sand actually piled up there over time to the point that there's a, there's a city on top of it. Now the siege that we're talking about here had occurred just about 300 years before Jesus's ministry uh, on the earth. Now keep in mind, that's just slightly longer between the American Revolution and today. So about another 50 years. So this is an event that's pretty, you know, people are aware of it. It's not recent, but it's at least recent enough in history that people were aware that it occurred. And it was, they're aware that it was such a major event that was beyond what anyone could have expected to the point that it literally changed the landscape of the entire planet for the rest of history. Because of something Alexander the Great did 2,000 years ago, we have a city here today. This is a big deal. And every last Israelite knew that the reason the face of the earth had been changed was because God chose to punish the wickedness of Tyre. Likewise, with Sodom and Gomorrah, we, the Israelites knew that God had punished these two cities because they were such sinful cities that you can even find 10 righteous people in the entire town. Never in the face of any city in all of history can that be applied to. We think about how sinful our society is today, and it absolutely is sinful. But there has never been a city as wicked in our eyes as Sodom and Gomorrah, where not even 10 righteous people could be found. That is why it's not an exaggeration to say that when Jesus rightly condemned them, when he denounced them, he was outright insulting Chorazon, Bethsaida, and Capernaum by comparing them to these three cities and saying, if they had seen what I did, they would be in sackcloth and ashes. There in verse 21, woe to you, Chorazon, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. So Jesus is saying, you thought they were bad? You thought Sodom was sinful? No. They would have done a complete 180 by now. They would have torn their clothes in half, put on sackcloth, and set in ashes and repentance, acknowledging God as the authority of their life. Meanwhile, these three cities persisted in their sin, despite seeing and hearing Christ directly. And here is actually the main point of my entire lesson, okay? I tell this lesson, the danger of the gospel. So everyone here should be thinking something. Why is the gospel dangerous? It's because God holds you accountable for your response to his gospel. Look at verse 22. It says, but I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. 
And again, that's repeated in verse 24. Uh, does this mean there are multiple layers of hell? Probably not. Short answer is I'm, I'm pretty confident the answer is no. Uh, there are certainly some subjects in the Bible that God hasn't given us complete revelation on. So I'm not going to stand here and say there's not because God hasn't told us that there is or isn't. Uh, we just know that it is a place. We know it's a lake of fire. Uh, but I can pretty confidently say that in the context of this passage, uh, we are not talking about there being multiple forms of punishment in hell. I, I think I stand on firm ground when I say that. Uh, the phrase day of judgment actually occurs seven times in the New Testament. And based on the context of these verses, what we're talking about here in Matthew 11, and the other seven times we talk about it throughout the New Testament, we're talking about the great white throne judgment, where death and Hades give up the dead, and all those who are still alive at the end of the world are brought before God and are judged. It says the books of their deeds are opened up, and every person is judged for what they did based on the contents of, of their deeds. Uh, and then everyone whose name is not found in the book of life are cast in the great, uh, into the book of fire. Uh, so based on this, I think it's a much more appropriate application to say that when we talk about uh, it's going to be worse for you on the day of judgment, we're talking about the fact that at that great white throne judgment, as we see our deeds recounted, there is going to be anguish. Uh, there is going to be uh, turmoil in our hearts as we we realize that we can only confess that we're guilty. It's going to be intolerable for people. So what are our applications we can take away from this passage? First of all, and most importantly, you need to examine your heart. You know, I, I can't read your heart. There, there's no leader here who can read anyone's heart. You and God alone know what's going on behind your eyes. If you are a hypocrite actor wearing the mask of Christianity, and turn aside. Admit that to yourself. And turn aside. Come to a genuine faith in Jesus. You can come and talk to me or one of the leaders or someone you can trust who is a Christian. You can talk about what you need to do to submit to God's authority. But absolutely examine yourself and make sure that you're not just a hypocrite wearing that mask. Second, I want to encourage you to examine the scriptures. I said that only you and God know your heart. That's a half lie. Um, you don't know your heart very well, to be quite frank. The Bible says the heart is only wicked, deceitful above all else. Uh, there's going to be plenty of people, according to Matthew 7, 21, who comes before God at the great white throne judgment and says, Lord, Lord, did we not do amazing things in your name? Did we not prophesy? Did we not cast out demons? And God's response is going to be, depart from me, I never knew you. It is extremely possible that you have trusted in your own salvation uh, and, a, and a gospel of your own design. So be reading the scriptures daily. Be in prayer daily. Be searching like the Bereans so that you can make sure that what you're thinking lines up with what God actually taught. Because the last application I have here, and one that I hope gives us all pause, is I want you to be mindful of the fact that God holds you accountable through your response to the gospel. And when I say gospel, um, I, I don't just mean that he came to earth, that he died for our sins as a substitute uh, for us, and that for all who believe in his death and resurrection, that he is the only way to God, will have their sins forgiven and be given his perfect life. All that is true. Uh, but when I say the gospel, that's not just what I'm talking about. Uh, 
I'm referring to, res- to all the teachings of Christ. In James 3.1, uh, James warns that not many should become teachers because God's going to judge those who teach his scriptures more strictly. In the parable of the, the talents, that there's a, a rich man who goes away for a while and he leaves one of his servants with ten talents. He leaves another one five, another one two. And with one with two buries it. And when the master comes back, he comes to the last servant. And the last servant says, well, I knew you were a strict master, taking or reaping where you did not sow. And so I was scared. So I buried it. So here's your money back. And the response that the master has is, you wicked and lazy servant. You should have at least put my money in the bank so I could have gotten interest on it. And he took the money away from that lazy servant. He gives it to one who had 10 and earned 10 more. God demands that you are accountable for what you hear. If you're here week after week after week, and you're hearing the message of God, and you are not submitting to it, God is going to hold you accountable for that. And he's going to hold you more accountable for that than if you had never heard it. The gospel is an absolutely dangerous thing to hear and not respond to. So let us respond to his word with genuine repentance, not as not as a hypocrite wearing a mask, but in a transformative way uh, from inside out. Let's go ahead and pray, guys. Father, we do thank you for your word. I pray that each of us would take the time to examine ourselves, to meditate daily on the scriptures, and to spend time in prayer with you so that we can know you more. I pray that we wouldn't just be playing the part of the hypocrite, that we would not be like a whitewashed tomb that looks good on the outside, but is inwardly full of rotten decay. I pray that you would embolden us to reach out to others and to share with them your powerful and dangerous gospel. Amen. Thank you.